Welcome to the WeGo Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads with unique careers and the roads they travel to get there. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Max Russo, class of 2020. Today, we talked to Megan Hernbroth, class of 2011, journalist at Business Insider on the healthcare, startup, and venture capital beat. Megan will share with us how her four years at our award-winning Wildcat Chronicle prepared her for Northwestern University's prestigious Medill School of Journalism and how it eventually prepared her to cover the stories of the mover and shakers in Silicon Valley. Joining us today is Megan Hernbroth from the class of 2011. Megan, what do you do? Um, I am a senior reporter at Business Insider. Where's your specialty in uh, at Business uh, Insider? Yeah, so I cover um, healthcare um, from kind of the business side of things. So I'm looking at um, specifically startups that are using technology to either you know rethink about how we go to the doctor, um, how we think about insurance. Um, I also tend to cover um, the investor community. Um, so venture capitalists, private equity, um, all that, all that good stuff. Okay. Okay. There's going to be, a, I'm going to have a ton of follow-up questions for that because there's just so much cool parts uh, to that. Um, all right. Let's rewind a little bit. Um, why did you want to get into journalism to begin with? Yeah. So um, I think, I mean, this is all goes back to, to my WeGo days. <laughs> I was on the Wildcat Chronicle at the time, all four years I was there. Um, it was one of those things that I really enjoyed writing. Um, and it was one of a handful of electives that were, that was available to freshmen. Um, and, uh, I took it and that kind of just sparked, sparked the whole thing. Um, and it's kind of contributed to, to my career since then. Do you remember what your first article was that you're like, I like this. I want to keep on going with this, that you just felt like everything was just clicking with you. Oh man. Um, there were a few. So when I was, um, I started writing a lot of feature articles at the Chronicle. Um, so that's a lot of, it was a lot of talking to people and getting to know people and learning kind of how to tell their story in a way that felt very true to what they were trusting me with as the writer. Um, and I, I don't unfortunately remember exactly kind of what was the one, but I just remember kind of getting into that, getting into that zone um, and really, um, kind of feeling how impactful something like this could be um, and what a big difference it could make in, in other people's lives. And, um, and just, I, I'm one of those people that I like to learn um, all the time. So which I guess makes journalism a, a pretty fitting area for me, but um, yeah, it's, it's just one of those things I like being able to learn from people and their experiences and, and all that good stuff. So you left WeGo and then you went into you went to Northwestern at the Medill School. Do you go directly into the Medill School? Do you have to apply to it? Because this is a fairly prestigious uh, journalism program. How did that process work? Yeah. So I, upon at um, when I when I was applying to Northwestern, I was pretty sure by that point that I wanted to go to school for journalism. Um, I only looked at colleges that had um, journalism programs for undergrads. So I. The way that Medill works is um, a lot of folks apply to Northwestern, just kind of, you know, big, big Northwestern. Um, 
as a as a general applicant and then later on transfer into Medill after they take a class or two and decide that that's what they want to do. Um, I had kind of already set my mind to it um, and, and was pretty stubborn about it. So I decided that, um, so I applied through there. Um, I'm not sure if that helps your odds <laughs> in getting in um, if you apply early like that, but um, it was something that um, I was um, deciding between Northwestern and University of Missouri was kind of the the other um, group I was looking at that also. And those had a are two great... fairly really prominent journalism schools, right? Like those are the ones that I've, even since when I was in high school, those were the ones that you're like, hey, that that's a big deal to get to those, right? Exactly. Yeah. So those were kind of the two, and I had decided that um, I couldn't I couldn't take a winter without snow. So Missouri was too far south for me, <laughs> and that was kind of how I how I landed on Northwestern. So what was the program like at Medill? Um, it's, they do a really good job, um, of making it a very experiential program. Um, and I think that's good for journalism specifically, just because there's so much that you don't learn just by sitting in a classroom and studying. I think I maybe had two class, like class, traditional classroom based courses. And one of them was, you know, ethics and, um, legal and law and, um, all of those kinds of things that I guess they don't want you to learn that firsthand, but um, we, yeah, so we, um, you kind of start off with, um, they do, they call them labs. And so you have actual time where you're actually out in the community in Evanston, in Northern Chicago, um, reporting for communities, for those communities. Um, I think one of the the best classes I took that, that was really great um, was the, I forget what the name of it's now, but it was 301. Um, I remember remember the number. Um, but you every you go three times a week to downtown Chicago. Um, we set up a um, a fake newsroom setup um, in a storefront downtown, and I was in Rogers Park, um, and we did just we we essentially put out an entire news organization for the Rogers Park community, which was um, had a very high immigrant population, um, a lot of non-native English speakers. Um, and so that was, I was, you know, lear- trying to learn a second language while also um, how to use um, podcasting software like this. So mm. it, it was, um, it was a very, very neat um, experience. And then, you know, they also do um, a residency program, which is you essentially get um, a full quarter, Northwestern's on the quarter system. So you take a full quarter of the year and you intern at a real publication. Um and so you can kind of go anywhere from the New York Times to BuzzFeed to um, the the Daily Herald or anything like that. Um, and so I did mine at, uh, believe it or not, Facebook. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> at the time, this was in 2014, so it was a different different world. Um, but we, um, I worked very closely with their engineering team to do um, educational posts. So it was more of a, a PR communications role. Um, to kind of learn about, you know, how servers work and data centers and, and all that good stuff. But that was all through Northwestern, which was really cool. Did you did you have to move to California for that? Or was that done remotely or at a, a, a more regional office for Facebook? No, I moved. Um, I took I spent my fall quarter senior year in um, in San Francisco. 
What a what an amazing uh, opportunity to uh, to work at you know really one of the most powerful media organizations on the planet. Really, what Facebook has become, but they've also been kind of in the crosshairs of um, uh, of, of journalism because of maybe the way that they have. Um, maybe siphoned off the actual revenue stream for those uh, particular publications is that seems to be kind of the um, the controversy of like how Facebook is um, if, if I remember correctly what's happening in Australia right now does that sound mm-hmm. familiar how I'm describing it yeah yeah so they the in Australia they Australia um, Parliament passed a law that they um, for anyone publishing content into an Australian audience, they had to um, partner with um, a news organization, essentially, to assure that that um, the information is correct. It was a way for them to combat uh, mis and disinformation, um, and they Facebook just decided they didn't want to do it, so they they pulled the plug, um, which is wild to me. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's just, it's one of those things. So I prior to reporting on healthcare, I reported on. Um, technology companies, um, mostly small startups. Um, but it was, it's, it's interesting to think about kind of the power that these companies wield, um, across the globe. It's, it's wild. It it really is. It's been something of that has, you know, obviously when I was teaching the media class many years ago, uh, and I, I had I shifted into teaching AP language, so um, I haven't been able to revisit you know those types of uh, uh, issues with the students as as directly as I as I used to. So, um, but it's fascinating for sure. Okay, so so you so you they had this really cool internship at at Facebook. What what then? What do you do after that? Uh, so you, did you then go to um, so you graduate from Medill at that point, or do you still have some more um, experience work at, at other places? No, so I, I graduated um, in March 2015, um, and then so I <laughs> I had student loans, obviously, <laughs> like most hmm. like most folks. Um, and so, kind of after leaving Medill, I, I um, worked. Um, my whole time through college. Um, so I, I unfortunately wasn't able to do things like be on the paper there um, or do kind of other extracurriculars. Um, I was waitressing and bartending and all that good stuff. Um, so when I when I left, I was mostly looking at, okay, how do I make money? Um, and in journalism, um, it's very common that internships are not paid, um, which is which is um, kind of a sticking point for a lot of folks. And part of the reason that the news industry um, is not as diverse as or representative as um, it should be. And so we I ended up taking an internship in PR and communications because that's the one that paid. <laughs> um, and that was what I um I figured, you know, it was close enough. You're still doing a ton of writing. You're still working really closely with reporters. Um, and it, it was um, kind of the financial um, decision that I, that I made at the time. Um, so I moved back to San Francisco um, and took a job at a PR agency that I had met through my internship with Facebook. So I had worked with them a little bit um, and was able to kind of wiggle my way in there. So you work at the uh, at this PR firm, uh, and then how did you then make the leap back to uh, Business Insider, or was there a step between there? 
there were a few steps. <laughs> um, so I, um, I went, I worked um, and did lead communications at a handful of different companies. Um, a little bit of everything. I did uh, cryptocurrency. I did um, consumer retail. I did nonprofit. I did a little bit of every, and I kept trying to figure out, you know, when things wouldn't feel right, you know, it was like, okay, well, maybe if I just try a different company or a different place, maybe that's what will what will then kind of settle this. Um, and by the third time I had done that, I was like, well, maybe it's just the fact that communications was never what I wanted to do. Um, and PR was not, not my first love. Um, so then I had reached out to um, someone that I had worked with from a PR standpoint, um, a reporter at Business Insider, and said, hey, you know, should I be freelancing? Should I be on Twitter? Should I be, you know, what should I be doing if I want to break into, you know, get back to reporting one day? Um, and he was like, oh, so you actually were hiring for this startups reporter job and you've like been in startups for the last couple of years. Maybe this is something that would be a good fit for you. And then um, I went through the process and, and did kind of the writing test and, and the interview process and all that. Um, and made the leap. And so it's usually, typically in media, it's the opposite. Folks tend to go from reporting to communications because it's the pay is better and the lifestyle is a little bit more stable. Um, but I kind of did the opposite. So um, I, I'm okay with it. But it's definitely something that um, has been brought up a few times when I'm meeting with people. They're like, this is not, you know, your traditional way into media. So um, but it's good. So it's you said you said that you had to take a, you said you had to take like a, a writing test. Uh, what's that like when you uh, have to take a writing test for uh, the uh, a publication like Business Insider? What what does that look like? Yeah, so um, I'm trying to remember what it was exact. So it was um, you had to write a pitch, um, so you were, as if you were pitching an editor on a story that you want to do, um, and then you also did just kind of a line edit test. So grammar, punctuation, that kind of thing. Um, and then the last one was, um, I believe three to 400 words of a story, um, pulled from, they give you kind of the prompt and they're like, okay, here, go cover this. Um, which is great. <laughs> um, now I realize how much legwork something like that would be in, in the real world. Um, but for that, it was, I read a lot of their current coverage. So I looked through old, um, articles that they had done um, on similar topics and that kind of thing so that I was able to get a feel for their style, their voice, how they like to structure things, um, just to make sure it was it was the right fit for what they were looking for at the time. Um, and that's kind of the benefit of PR was that um, you, you shift styles in voice because you're always writing for someone different. You're not really writing for yourself. So at the time, I was very good at you know, putting on a different hat each time I, I wanted to, to write something. Um, and since then, it's been, um, I don't know that I would be able to do that today. I've, I've definitely honed my, my personal voice a little bit. Um, but that was kind of the, the process. That, what you just said about, uh, like, just really warmed this AP language teacher's heart about <laughs> synthesizing, finding voice, and and talking about structure <laughs> and all that stuff. Like, I'm swooning. Uh, so that's, that's amazing. <laughs> um, so so that, that is uh, so. What's now you're so now you're at Business Insider. You you did bring up like part of the test that is interesting. How then do you go about 
um, finding your particular niche at Business Insider? And then I guess the follow-up question to that is, how do you find your stories? Is this something that you're um, on the lookout? Does this? Do you have an editor that says, hey, Megan, go check check chase this one down how, how does the uh the 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 process unfold yeah so when i first joined i was covering startups and venture capital which um especially having being in san francisco at the time um is basically everything like that's every business that's every person that's um every dollar that is spent in that city um, tends to be venture capital, that kind of thing. So it, it's huge. It's it's a massive undertaking. Um, so what I would do was just kind of, you know, I, I just met with people constantly and kind of getting a feel for, you know, what did I gravitate towards? Um, what did our readers gravitate towards? Um, our editor in chief likes to talk a lot about, um, and he'll love that I'm that I'm plugging this. <laughs> um, that there's this Venn diagram of what you care about as the reporter and what the audience cares about as the the rest of the world um and where we like to report is kind of that middle that middle overlap where um it's something that is both fulfilling for us as reporters um and also still interesting for other people to read um so i covered a lot of financial um companies actually um a lot of um, fintech and startups and um that kind of thing. Um, but it just wasn't that our readers loved it, but it wasn't something I was super excited about, um, all the time. And so I started kind of dipping my toe into the healthcare world and seeing, and, um, you know, this was probably around this time last year that I was like, huh, let's think about how our healthcare system works. Um, and started kind of looking at startups that were in that space, um, and just how much money goes into it. Um, and so that was, kind of how I, how I made my way there. Um, but for now the pitching is very much like I come to my editor with an idea and say like here, you know, I've been talking to a lot of people and, you know, I, they've all mentioned this one company. Um, I think they might be fundraising. Like I want to go take a look at it or something like that. Um, so it's based on, you know, con- continuing to have these, these relationships. The nice thing about investors is they're very gossipy. So, <laughs> <laughs> they like to, they always, te- they always give you something um, to look into, which is good. Um, and then at, every once in a while, there's, you know, big projects across the team. Um, we're very independent and autonomous, which is nice. Um, I think being, we're all fully remote at the moment. So I think that also helps um, that, you know, I can go out and spend a day or two looking into something and, you know, I don't have anyone like tapping on my desk being like, okay, where, where's the story? Um, so that's, that's been helpful too. So do you have like a, a, I'm just imagining like your desk, you have a calendar say like, this is what is my long, long form story or something like that. Like, so you have one that, you know, that takes time to develop and then you have like a Goldilocks, right? So it's like, this one's going to take some time. This one's like in the middle. And then this one I have to have turned around maybe by the end of the week. Is that a type of slate that you would have in terms of your writing regiment for typical? Would it look something like that? Or am I just kind of guessing? No, that's, that's about right. Um, I think usually I, I try to not take on um, more than kind of one big story at a time. Um, so something that'll take a couple of weeks. Um, like I have something that I've done all the reporting for now and now I need to like sit down and write it. Um, 
which usually takes a couple of days just to kind of, when you have 30 pages of notes to look through, um, takes a little bit of, you have to psych yourself up a little bit for it. But um, I wouldn't take on another big story like that until that one is kind of out the door. So then I, I balance it with, you know, um, shorter news items um, or, um, like you said, kind of the, the medium length things that are more, um, they tend to be trend pieces. Um, there was a story I worked on recently that was um, about there's um, companies that um, provide kind of virtual doctor's visits and they've all started offering medication services. Um, they partner with other companies that do kind of the shipping and logistics and policy of getting your medication in the mail. Um, but all of these tiny little startups are now offering that because they're, they're trying to grow. So stuff like that um, is kind of what, what a medium length story would look like. Now for the one that has like the 30 pages of notes, you know, that you have for that, that would be in the longer one, I would presume. What's the process of, of maybe going after that one? Like, is it, how do you, ch- I, I'm just, I'm fascinated. Uh, I'm fascinated about how you organize the process because I almost fall over when I have to write a, uh, a model paragraph for my AP students. I'm like, oh, it's <laughs> too much. I'm, I'm here. You have to have the the crucible of a deadline and uh, and and so much. I, I'm just trying to like get wrap my wrap my mind around how a reporter uh, and a journalist w- begins to tackle a, a a longer piece like that. Yeah. So my I I'm a big fan of outlines. I do a lot of outlines. Um, and so especially so Business Insider is is nice because it's digital only. It only lives on, on the internet. Um, so I don't have to worry about anything like, you know, running out of page space the way that a print journalist would, um, which is good. Um, but that also kind of, it's almost too much freedom. Um, anything could be, huh. you know, Paradox it could be 2,000 words. Exactly. And then, or it could be 5,000 words, depending on how you want to, how you want to tackle it. Um, so I, I do an outline and I kind of play with it too. It's I don't treat it as kind of the end all be all. I treat it as a starting point so that it's it's mostly for me to organize my thoughts um, after having sifted through 30 pages of notes. Um, and then the first thing I do when writing the story is write the headline. Um, so that way that kind of shows me what my angle is and what the focus of the story is. Because um, otherwise what I've done it before is, you know, you start writing and then you end up somewhere totally different than what you intended when you started. And then that ends up being the headline is what you put at the, at the very end of the story. Cause that's what was most interesting. Um, so I, I try to think through that as well um, and get, get it that way. I always leave my, my lead and um, kicker at the end for last, because those are kind of the artistic, points of, of the story, in my opinion, um, especially in something big like that. So um, it's something that um, takes a little bit of thought and a little bit of, of um, like a light touch. Um, so it's not something that that goes super well on deadline, usually. And, the, and that's got to be the most rewarding part is like you said it that is the that's where the real craft as a writer probably comes in is is in the kicker and and in the lead uh as well just out of, out of curiosity who are your favorite writers that you're like ooh, that's a really good lead like who are your favorite ones that you um like aspire or you know kind of model your your uh your your writer uh eye towards 
Yeah, I think from a from a writing style perspective, um, there's this um, correspondent um, named Anne Helen Peterson that I just really like her style. She's very um, factual but conversational and does it in a way that um, you don't quite know as the reader where the story is going and what her conclusion is going to be. Um, but it's always very it's very insightful and very. Um, just it, it's one of those things where you stop and you think and you're like huh okay like that is you know something I should be considering or something I should be doing um and she she just came out with a book that I read and I think that's probably why she she's very top of mind um that was in her book was fantastic um and then I think probably the other two from a reporting standpoint um is Jody Cantor and uh Megan Tuhi who um, reported out the Harvey Weinstein allegations in 2017. Um, and, and they just, they, they also have a book um, that essentially is a how-to guide for reporting. Um, it's fantastic. And they, um, you know, go through how they, how they got sources, how they got people to talk to them, like how they got these women to trust them, what the legal process was like in, in bringing a story like this. And so, um, I just very much admire their their reporting chops. It's interesting, you know, you because the nature of your beat is that you are in contact with venture capitalists and um, and, and investors and, and all of the people who have these incredible uh, ideas with all that. I was wondering how do you develop your um, your relationship with uh, your sources and and these topics because you know as a reporter you have to uh, find that right balance, which is I, I have to develop my source and, and, but then be honest and, and, and call it out when, when I see it, how do you, how do you kind of match that rubric in your mind when you're writing a story uh, to kind of find that balance of truth and power uh, when you are, um, when you're, when you're writing a tough story? Yeah. So I think um, I wrote a story back in um, January of last year. So January, 2020, um, that was a huge um, undertaking that was looking at um, a startup in Silicon Valley that was um, falling apart, for lack of a better word. Um, it was just um, folks were leaving. There were layoffs. They were having money problems. The, the founder was, was kind of a nut. And so I had to eventually talk to this founder. And I had, at that point, written several stories kind of chronicling, you know, this executive left this funding fell through, these layoffs happened. And eventually I was like, well, I have to talk to the fat, like the guy that all of these stories are about. Um, and that was, um, and it's, I'm for being a journalist, I don't love confrontation. Um, so that's a little bit of a mismatch, but um, that was a situation where um, I should have built that source earlier. I should have reached out and talked with him earlier um, because by then I had already kind of, he knew what my motivation was. Um, and it's not that I would have misled him in any way, but it's definitely that, um, he might've been able to be a little bit more forthcoming, um, or, you know, honest with me versus kind of doing the, the spin and PR of, of things. Um, so that, that was kind of the, the, how not to do it. <laughs> um, and in, other cases, what I what I do um, and how I built kind of relationships with the employees in that story and other folks 
um, that helped source that story was um, just being very open and available. Um, and this was obviously in pre-COVID time. So, um, you know, meeting for folks, you know, for dinner after work and just kind of being like, hey, like what's going on with your life? Like being very um just kind of upfront with what you're going for, I think really helps in um, just kind of setting the relationship um, parameters out. Um, so that way everyone kind of knows there's no misleading, there's no mischaracterizations, there's no miscommunication that anyone feels like they got burned. Um, we kind of operate at Business Insider that, you know, no one should be surprised with what they read. From us. Um, so if we're going through PR to do fact checking, um, you know, just kind of laying it out and saying, like, here are all of the things that are in the story. What do you how do you feel, you know, refute? Is this accurate or not? Um, and then that all gets printed. So I think that's just kind of the biggest tenet of it is just to be honest, super, super early and super upfront. You know, you've been in California, in Silicon Valley, reporting on all these um, these really impressive uh, startups and and all of that, how has because of the this incredible year of startups and I should say biotech focus, are stories almost too easy to come by because there's so much maybe investment coming into biotech because of um, because of COVID and all that? Or is it is it is it easier to find source material because of the year we're having um, uh, in in lockdown and and just dealing with the COVID age? Yeah, so I think um, if anything, so I I approach most of my coverage and most of my stories with a very skeptical lens. Um, so if someone's coming to me and saying, you know, my air purifier cures COVID, here's why, <laughs> um, that is um, bogus. And but if the company is saying, okay, I raised 150 million dollars for my bogus air purifier, I'm like, okay, so who is making, who is writing those checks? Who is like, who's not looking into the science? Like what is going on here? So if anything, I think all of this attention has led to a lot of, um, for better or worse, um, folks that shouldn't be investing and shouldn't be working in this space. Um, Either they don't really have the background or the experience, um, or they're just trying to make a quick buck, um, which is really awful. So I think like that's been something that we've kind of been paying attention to every time a company goes public or, you know, is um, out with the new latest and greatest. Um, that's just a, we kind of are like, huh, that that's interesting. I'm going to pay attention to this happening over here. Um, but on the other the other hand, you know, there is so much happening at the moment. And if anything, it's um, more difficult to kind of parse out what's a story and what's not. Um, because you, it's hard to kind of figure out when things are changing so quickly, kind of what is an incremental change and what is, you know, something that's truly new. Um, and that's something that, especially in the earlier days of the pandemic, um, we were kind of trying to figure out, okay, you know, Google says that they're going to start doing contact tracing. Um, you know, is that really a thing or is it something that, you know, they're just saying it for PR and, you know, they're not really going to roll out any meaningful initiative. So it, it definitely um, has put a lot of the onus back on us um, as reporters to make sure that what we're getting is 
you know, factually accurate and, and good and news that is helpful to people and not necessarily um, misleading people, which I think has also kind of been an issue um, given kind of the year that we're having is that, you know, a lot of stuff for better or worse is just not being um, well sourced or, or checked out as rigorously as it should just because we don't have the time <laughs> or the, mm-hmm. the, the bandwidth. Um, and so that's something that has, um, that we're, that we're working against as well. Megan, because of your contacts and because of the beat that you're on with venture capitalism, and then especially with the, uh, the, the, that your access to seeing all this really kind of cool medical uh, uh, advancements, has there been a company or something that you've seen that you could say is actually very Promethean in that you feel that it's, wow, that's going to change the world? Yeah. So um, I think when I was on the startups uh, beat, I was, I was doing mostly investigations. So I, um, it, tend, it, it leads me to be very skeptical <laughs> anytime anyone is claiming to, to have technology that um, can change the world or, you know, is really going to do these things. I'm thinking of, you know, like the WeWorks and Airbnb and, and maybe even an Uber, um, which while two of those are now successful companies, um, WeWork obviously did not go, did not go that well. Um, so I, the other one I'm, I'm thinking of that comes to mind is Theranos. Um, that oh, yeah. was, she's, um, the founder, Elizabeth Holmes is still being, her trial is this summer, um, for fraud because she essentially made up bogus science, um, because the science just truly did not exist, um, to do what her company was claiming it could do with, you know, a single prick blood test. Um, it's just like, there wasn't a way to do it. Um, even though she was selling it on, on billions of dollars, um, and had Henry Kissinger on her board and all those kinds of things. But um, I think on in healthcare, there's there's a reason that companies can't necessarily move fast and break things um, because it, it's healthcare, it's people's lives. Um, but I think, um, and so then the, the advancements and things that are truly groundbreaking, I think are really rooted in, in um, scientific advancements. I'm thinking of personal, um, specifically uh, genomics and uh, personalized medicine. So this idea that, um, you know, the, the Advil that uh, you pick up from the pharmacy is slightly different than the Advil I pick up at, at the pharmacy because, you know, I have a predisposition to, you know, something that, that makes, makes what, um, what should be in that pill for me a little bit different. Um, and there's some really cool stuff happening there. Um, and I think those are the companies that they've been able to um, build actual businesses where they're actually making money um, by kind of pushing forward these scientific advancements. Um, I think Color is one of those companies. Um, 10X Genomics is a public company, but um, they also are, are doing some really interesting stuff. Um, and I think you know, they're incentivized if they want to keep growing and they want to keep making money as public or private companies, you know, they need to keep um, researching and keep doing all this um, development and and pushing scientific advancements forward. So I think those are the companies that um, long-term will kind of be the benefit for for humanity. It's probably impossible to overstate how difficult it must be to compete with 
the types of bad faith um, disinformation uh, that's out there. And you've, you know, you started at Facebook as an intern in 2014, and here we are in 2021. How do you see your messaging as a journalist being able to maybe win out against kind of the bad faith, misinformation, disinformation, especially when it comes to health news? How do you, how are you able to um, have uh, to kind of confront that uh, as a, a, in your job? It's hard. Um, it's very, very hard. Um, we, the nice thing about reporting is that we, um, all of our reporting and our stories and our information is based in facts. Um, and science. And so that's um, when I'm, you know, speaking about a topic, it's because I feel that I, I know what I'm talking about. Um, There's always, you know, topics and, and this is probably why I wasn't um, as super excited about uh, financial companies, just because I just felt in over my head at all times. um, And that I just couldn't fully grasp the facts of, of the, the market or the industry. And, um, that's not necessarily something I struggle with in, in science and healthcare and that it's hard. I think the hardest part of it is having that conversation with people that have been, have just gotten reeled in so much by the mis and disinformation out there that um, there's, there's no way to even kind of use the facts to, to bring them out and to say, you know, Hey, like this is, this is kind of the truth. This is science. This is, this is um, what we all kind of accept as our, our shared truth um, as a society. And so that's kind of the more difficult part. Um, and I think, you know, there's obviously a role um, that free um, social media sites, I'm even Google and, and Apple news kind of fall into this category as well, because it's, it's, commoditized news information in that, you know, no one's willing to pay for news. Um, and so things are driven by, by ads and by clicks and all of these things that, you know, were intended to rile people up for, for engagement numbers. And that's how, um, some sites made money. Um, but it kind of just eroded trust in, in media, you know, capital M, um, among the public. And I think, you know, there's, it's a two sides thing that, you know, we both need to kind of work to, to understand each other um, between the public and, and reporters, because there's just so much bad <laughs> there between the two parties that um, it just gets really hard to, it's, it's like talking to a wall. And, and so sometimes it, it's, it's very, very difficult. Um, I think it's probably the biggest um, challenge that, um, reporters and, and other media folks are, are going to have to address um, in the next, you know, five to 10 years. Um, I love asking uh, these questions. I know I primed this for you uh, earlier, but, you know, and you could answer both of these or one of them uh, as I, as I suggested, which is, you know, if you were given an advance to go write a book about uh, a topic of your choice as a writer, um, what do you, th- what do you think that topic would be or, or, and, if you were given kind of a like a year to go investigate a story as thoroughly as possible for some type of long form journalism, what do you think? What would the topic be? What would you go chase down? Yeah, on the on the story front, I think um, just currently, I think one of an interesting thing to to spend time looking at would be um, 
how the um, Department of the Interior through the federal government has run the coronavirus response on um, Native American reservations. Um, I think there's been a lot there and not a lot of folks have been able to look into it um, as to kind of what the response has been like. Um, these are very, fairly rural communities or um, just generally um, kind of on the, on the um, lower end in terms of federal funding, um, but they have some of the highest vaccination rates in the country at the moment. Um, but kind of at the outset, it was, it was um, not good. And so I think there's, there's something there. Um, I don't know what it is, um, yeah. but that would be something that, you know, obviously it would involve a ton of travel and a ton of sourcing and research and FOIAs and, and all those things. So I think that would be kind of a, a bigger, a bigger challenge to take on, um, on the books. I mean, I've, every reporter has thought about writing a book. <laughs> That's um, why I asked. <laughs> and so I, I, I like always and it's kind of it's one of those things that it's just in kind of the the back of my mind at all times you know it's like what what could i theoretically talk about um and it changes daily um i think most recently um i i've been curious to look at kind of um um culture among um employees at, at startups um i think there's some interesting kind of psychology stuff happening um, in terms of, um, you know, it's all family and, you know, there, there's all these lavish perks and it seems super cool, but then you're working like 18 hours a day and like everyone burns out and, and things like are on fire all the time. And, um, it's kind of nuts. So I think, um, I think Anna Wiener, um, wrote a, a book called Uncanny Valley. That was, um, mostly a memoir. Um, that was really good. Um, and so I, I wouldn't, I don't think I could stand to it, but um, that's kind of where my head is at currently. Yeah. I, w I would read that book. That sounds, uh, that sounds incredible because there's so many great, rich psychological and sociological parallels that I think that you could make uh, with that. Oh, that'd be, oh so uh, just because you brought it up, do you remember what your first freedom of information uh, request was? Oh man. Um, it was definitely in, in Medill. Um, we had, it was part of the, um, the the legal and ethics class we took it was we had like a one day seminar on how to file a FOIA um I think I was looking at <laughs> I this probably didn't get me goodwill I FOIA'd um Northwestern's donor list um, <laughs> <laughs> probably wasn't great <laughs> but as a private institution they technically don't have to give it so then that was kind of my professor's feedback and so then I ended up FOIAing donors at um i think illinois state um since they're a state school so they have to report that kind of thing but yeah oh, that's that's great <laughs> uh it's too good uh so megan you've been so generous with your time i probably have tw 20 more questions that i, I go after you know uh, maybe I'll, I'll interview you uh, after you write your book and we'll do it again <laughs> so um and i always like leaving the interview with um when the guest is able to kind of share tips for success. And I was wondering if you could share uh, some uh, with current Wildcats. Yeah. So I think um, as my experience indicates, like being, I, I kind of had this idea that being successful was a very linear progress. Like, you know, you get your first job and then you get a second job and then, you know, you continue up the ladder and then eventually, you know, one day you're 
specter of what you consider successful. Um, but that has not been my experience. Um, obviously, I, I moved around a lot. Um, I tried a lot of different things. Um, and each time, like I learned something from each one, even though they weren't necessarily kind of my long-term career. Um, I take with it kind of each time I, I leave somewhere um, with kind of this reserve bank of knowledge. Um, and now as a reporter, that's very helpful um, in knowing everything trying to know everything about everything. But um, I did a lot of kind of comparing myself to my peers and thinking like, oh, well, you know, this person keeps getting promoted over here. And like, I've changed jobs twice in two years. <laughs> like, what's wrong with yeah. me? Um, and, you know, like now, like it got me where I wanted to be. So I think just kind of being very persistent. And even if stuff like doesn't feel that it is working kind of forward. Um, you still, you still are progressing forward. That's perfect. Perfect. Megan, thank you so much. And this has been super great. And I will be sure to include, uh, in the episode notes, links to your current articles. And this has been super fun. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. I really enjoyed doing it. Oh, and one more thing, uh, Miss Keen, uh, I, I told her this morning and I said, what do you want me to ask her? And she said, is <laughs> Megan still a Blackhawks fan? <laughs> yes, I okay. am. Okay, uh, good. We're not giving any love yeah. to the San Jose Sharks and none oh, of that business. No. So, okay, so good. <laughs> no, I've gone uh, into enemy territory with my Blackhawks clearly, jersey at, clearly. at the Shark Tank. Um, yeah. I am not a very popular person there. But, That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she'll love hearing that. Uh, she'll love hearing that. Megan, thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you want to find past episodes, go to Apple Music, Podcasts, and search We Go Vox.